Blog Talk Radio. You're now listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast, broadcasting from sunny Orange County, California. Filmmaker, journalist, and film historian, Paul Booth. Joined today by uh, Mr. Wynn Thomas to the audience. I'll be referring to him as Wynn. Uh, he's been the production designer between films that in the last couple of generations we've all loved. Classics like Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, Wag the Dog, which I've now deemed a horror film with what's going on in the world. Uh, so many other great things inside them. If you haven't seen this, go see it. Uh, get it at your library or find it um, uh, on Netflix. And then, of course, we're gonna, we're here today to talk about um, the fact that he has a just a wonderful comedy titled Almost Christmas with Danny Glover, Omar Epps, Gabrielle Union. Union. Uh, it is a wonderful film. And I think we should jump right into that. I mean, we'll, how was mm-hmm. that experience for you having to put a spin on what's just genuinely the design of Christmas? Right. Well, uh, Paul, thanks for uh, inviting me to participate in this podcast today. I'm very happy to be here. Um, Almost Christmas was a delight to make. We made the film in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, actually, it was last year. This time we were actually finishing up the film. Uh, the movie is uh, a, a black ensemble picture that was produced, uh, that is produced by Will Packer, who, I don't know if you know this, is probably one of the most successful black producers uh, in Hollywood history. And it was directed by a man named David Talbert, who, and that, it was David's uh, third movie. And David is a, a, a primarily a theater um, writer and director and producer. So uh, it was great uh, uh, being part of uh, his journey on his third movie. But we uh, we shot the film uh, primarily in one house in Atlanta. And uh, the, the, uh, for your viewers who don't know the story, it's the story of a, of a large family. And uh, it's the story of what happens, the gathering of this family for the first Christmas. And it's the first Christmas after the mother has died. So it's, uh, it is a comedy. But there is a layer of grief underneath the uh, the entire movie, running through the film. Um, but it's really quite delightful. But so the challenge for this film, 
for me as a designer was in the house that we, we where most of the movie takes place, it's really to try and get a sense of who this mother was, who this uh, maternal figure was, because she um, really does have an impact on her, on her entire family, and the fact that she's no longer there for this Christmas holiday has had an impact on the whole family. So part of what my job was was to really get a sense of who this, who this person was, and we, the audience, of course, never see her. So um, that was the challenge for me as a designer. Well, that uh, was um, – I, I, I when, how you're saying that was a challenge for you as a designer was that – and for those of you that don't know uh, the way Wynn mentioned Will Packer, um, I know you guys do know right along, right along to the wedding ringer uh, obviously, he is a big reason Kevin Hart, aside from his own talent, is such a household name. Uh, this feature filmography is just way too long to read all of it to you. Um, so this is a really, uh, season producer has when said, um, but what you mentioned about the challenge of designing a character that wasn't there was that I got that feeling like the character was there and not just the way people uh, spiritually say, oh, grandma is with us. Or it, mm -hmm. now that you're saying that it goes back in my mind and it is kind of like, uh, I mean, we the premise is, is that she's gone. So it's not spoiling anything that she's seen in picture or, but Danny Glover, uh, what a fantastic job to, uh, play off of a photograph or play off of something that's not there. I I was really happy with uh, Danny Glover. Um, I've always liked him, but it was kind of like uh, him being used in a way I'd never really seen him used before. And mm -hmm. so I really, uh, yeah, you know, and I really want to encourage people to see this because isn't the lethal weapon uh when we get beyond the controversy of Mel Gibson, they were a duo. They did have that 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 thing with them. Now, the thing that I always wanted to know was we hear it differently in film school versus books versus talking as filmmakers. I would love to know from with a production designer explaining it how we separate production designer, art director art director, set decorator, are they, mm -hmm. are they all under you? I mean, there's mm -hmm. always the confusion. So what, how would you explain that? Yeah, I'd be happy to explain that. Uh, the product, here's the hierarchy. Here's how it works. The production designer is the head of the art department, and it is the job of the production designer to work with the director and the cinematographer to establish the look of the movie. Uh, so the, the production designer is usually one of the first people hired, and my job is to really uh, take the writer's words and to turn them into visual images, to, to turn them into concrete images. Working directly underneath, alongside me, is the art director, and the art director's job is to take my ideas and turn them into realities. Um, Oh, okay. uh, then there, so in other words, 
uh, I'm working with the, with the director, and, you know, I will design all the sets. I will choose all the locations. Everything that is visual falls under my umbrella, my domain. Then it's the art director to take all of my concepts, the concepts or my take all of my drawings, and to turn those drawings into uh, uh, reality. In other words, to put them into the hands of either art directors, assistant art directors, or set designers, and to get them drawn up or, or to turn them into architectural drawings so the construction crew can build from them. Um, also in my department is the set decorator, and the set decorator's job is really my, um, really kind of my uh, closest collaborator because the set decorator is working with me to help define character. In other words, the set decorator is providing uh, me with all, you know, working with me to choose all the furniture, to choose, you know, to help choose wallpaper. And essentially what they're doing with, with me is that they're collaborating with me in terms of giving definition to who these people are and how they live. And th they are working very closely with me to establish the look uh, of the characters. So that's why at Academy Award time, uh, the Oscar goes to um, the production designer as well as the set decorator because that person is is really uh, my closest collaborator in terms of, the, of developing the look of the movie. There are also other people who are working with us. So again, we have the assistant art director or the set, de set designer who are taking my drawings and turning them into construction drawings. Uh, there are often uh, illustrators who are working with us. Nowadays in the art department, there's a, a job that has become very big, and that's called the graphic designer. Um, and the reason that job has become so big, you know, 100 years ago, you didn't need to clear anything to put it on a set. Nowadays, uh, that world has changed, and the world has become tangled up in legality. So everything that you see on the set, has to be cleared, otherwise you can't put it on the set. So as a result of that, what's happened in the art department, we now have someone who is this graphic, who is a very vital part of the process called the graphic designer, and that person is uh, uh, doing all kinds of work. They're doing, sometimes they're creating artwork that has to go on the wall. Sometimes they're doing photo composites. Um, and... Some, or they're doing certificates, but everything that you see on a set nowadays has to uh, be cleared by legal by whatever production company you're, that you're working with. So it's it's really it's it's a nightmare, really. But but it sounds as a like result it. Oh. of go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's a true nightmare. I mean. Really, when I started doing this business uh, 30 years ago, you could put anything up that you wanted on the set. You didn't have to clear anything. And uh, as a result, you know, what, the way this has had an impact is that sets used to really, what you used to be able to do was really um, <clears throat> give a set a very specific reality. Sometimes when you're doing these period films, you want to use products that were available at that time. 
Nowadays, you can't do that because if you can't clear that product, then you can't use it. So I think that it has gone too far. I mean, uh, I mean, literally at the studios, there is a whole department that is just set up to, to look at all the details that we're putting on a set and making sure that there is an actual paper trail to either oh. getting that, that item cleared or if we can't clear the item, then we have to recreate an item from scratch. And so we're, talk, so we're talking about all the way down to that rug is such and such Armani. So Armani has to say you can have it on the floor, even though only in one Danny Glover walks. Wow, that is, I didn't know. Yeah, that's that crazy. Yeah, with I mean, hats you know, and so, logos. You know, for example, wow. all the artwork that goes on the walls has to be cleared. Uh, we fortunately we're not at we're I don't want to mis misguide you here we're not oh, having really? to have to clear rugs yet or or furniture but we are oh. all the artwork that you see all of the cars uh, you know all the for example um, it's it, it, it's 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 amazing really it's gotten to be uh, uh, it's quite problematic but anyway that's so. This all of this is just to say that the graphic designer has become a big component of the art department. So, in addition to the graphics person, we also, as you know, we we also I'm in charge of a large contingent of construction people who work for me, a large contingent of painters, and an equally large contender of set decorators. So, the art department usually there's you know there's almost there's like a hundred people all working to uh, develop and to support the look of the movie. Wow. I hope that goes up that question. Oh, that, that really helps. I mean, so that that must have a, 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 an extra enjoyment when it's location or the stuff's already done or you're, you're shooting in New York City so you don't have to build an apartment building. Um, is, well, you know, uh, I think what people don't know is that the production designers actually uh, finds everything. I think the mythology is, is that the director's out there looking for locations, but that is not the truth. The locations department is part of the art department in the early part of the process. That The locations department yeah. is actually getting all of its instructions from the production designer, not from the director. Um, because again, the locations department is part of helping me to establish what the look of the movie is. So in order to control that, I have to work very closely with that locations person. So for the first several months on a film, the locations department is a vital part of the art department. Uh, on the movies that I do, the locations people never speak to the director. I speak to the director, and then I communicate our ideas to the locations people. Uh, okay, so then just just uh, so then you're 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 getting the location now. You also, I mean, you probably do by now understand the difference between what a five k and a forty k. But where does this come in with? you and the DP. 
Okay, so on, I think, the, again, the mythology of, it, of, of the business is that the DP is, is there from the beginning of the process. And again, that is not true. It depends on the type of whatever type of movie that you're doing. On most pictures nowadays, the DP is hired much later in the process. So by the time the DP comes on, most of the locations are already chosen. Uh, so as soon as the DP arrives, of course, what we do is we go back with the director and myself and the DP, and we go over all the locations because ultimately the uh, the cinematographer has to, uh, you know, it's, it's part of the uh, the artistic aspect of designing the film, but also he or she has to feel that they can uh, light the set. You know, um, as a production designer, of course, I'm always thinking about how the set's going to be lit. I'm very conscious of the size of the set. I'm very conscious, uh, you know, of where, you know, of, uh, where I think lighting's going to need to go. I'm very conscious of how the set's going to be lit. This is all the stuff that happens uh, unconsciously for me right now. It's not, it's second nature to my, um, so not only am I looking to establish how the film will, you know, to, to determine how the film will look, but I also have to think about how the film's, how the, each set is going to be lit. But, but again, I do this, this happens unconsciously now. It's not even, uh, um, it's not something that, I do it automatically because, you know, it's just those, all these years of experience. Uh, right. So, depending on when the cinematographer comes on, uh, uh, you know, very, if you're lucky, uh, usually they will accept most of the choices that you choose. Sometimes there's a disagreement, and at that point, uh, if the director agrees with what the cinematographer is saying, then you go out and you change that location. Um, so it is a collabor, but it is a collaboration. I, but again, I think um, I think the mythology of it is is that um, that um, the DP has a bigger. It is. I, here's how I think of this, my friend. I think of it as a triangle um, with the director at the top. And the production designer and the cinematographer for at the other ends of that triangle, and we're all making equal collaborations. We're all making we all have an equal input into uh, determining what the look of the movie is going to be. Um, uh, I, uh, okay, okay. You see what I'm saying? So you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, this is because yeah, I, I'm trying not to uh, to then think of well is the space that works for you, give the proper blocking or give the, and that's just a whole other. Okay, now here's, um, again, here's the thing. Blocking is determined by the production designer. Uh, again, this is, you know, I will do a floor plan for each set. I will lay out where the furniture is going to go. And in the process of doing that, in many ways, what you're doing is you're already helping them begin to determine how they're going to shoot that sequence. That, those floor plans that I do, I go over those floor plans with the director, and when the cinematographer is there, I go over all that stuff there. But the first pass on every single set is, is designed by me, by the production designer. So in many ways, we are, you know, we are really doing the first pass of how the movie is going to be staged. Then, of course, once they arrive on the set, 
uh, you know, or depending on what how the the conversations between the cinematographer and the director uh, evolve, things will be changed if if they're needed to be changed. I have to tell you that uh, I'm pretty good at this. In other words, a placement of furniture and thinking about how things are going to be staged. It's very rare. I've been very lucky, and, it's, and part of it is because I know what I'm doing, but it's very rare for a director to arrive on a set, on one of my sets, and change anything on the set. Because, again, I've thought this through very carefully. I've had, you know, I've had a discussion with the director. I've had very careful discussions about how he or she thinks they're going to stage things. And then, you know, also the cinematographer is involved in that process early on. So it's, it's but it's very rare. Uh, some, they'll come in and they'll move a piece of furniture or, you know, they'll move uh, uh, a small item, but it's very rare for them to come in and, re, you know, cause to rearrange things because I've thought through it very, very carefully. And I'm always thinking about how a director is going to stage something. That's what my preliminary, that's what my early conversations are with that director. In other words, do you see the action taking place here? Literally, my feeling is as a production designer, and especially when it comes to a location, is that if a director walks onto a location and doesn't see where the action has to occur immediately, then that is the wrong location. So generally what happens is when the location is right, the director will be able to walk into whatever that location is and immediately see where the action is. Sometimes it requires a little bit of a conversation on my part in, in terms of saying, oh, I see this bit of action taking place here. I see that taking place there. But by and large, if the location is the right location, the director will walk in and will know immediately how to stage the sequence. And you're now the the thing that comes to mind now that you and thank you for this great explanation because I I view all of these shows as kind of uh, I feel like I'm getting a free master's class so I do <laughs> yeah, I do okay. appreciate, <laughs> I, I I look at the archive and I go wow I that was like a semester's worth of information um, so. So basically, uh, you know, people that uh, know do the right thing and Malcolm X and she's got to have it. Uh, where would you say that in terms of other production designers that you know that for the first four or five you had the, um, you got to do films with, uh, same director, same DP, and also I believe you guys were all NYU film school students together, correct? I'm sorry, what did you just say? You, you, you guys were all, you guys... Uh, no, you no, guys... no. Um, Ernest and Spike went to NYU together. I had a con completely different journey. I went to Boston oh, okay. University. Yeah, oh, I was okay. a theater set designer. I had no, I was a theater. My background is in theater set design, and oh, okay. I went to Boston University. That's all right. Most people, yeah, that's all right. But you guys got to, uh, I would say, in comparison to other production designers, 
that, you know, you did get to do uh, a number of films together consecutively. That's so correct. That, right. So that must have been a great training ground to learn how to understand a director and a director understand you and a DP as opposed to, well, I don't know where he likes to do this and I don't. Right, right, um, right. I, I agree with you. I agree 100% with you. I mean, the, the, the joy of those early years was that uh, uh, when you have that situation where you're working with the same people all the time, uh, you, you, first of all, you, you get to understand each other's sensibilities very quickly. And the thing about uh, uh, Ernest and Spike and, and there was Ruth Carter, who was the costume designer, um, was that we were really kind of all on the same page in terms of approach and 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 a sensibility, um, and therefore as a result of that, there was a shorthand that was developed very quickly, uh, and there was a real understand. We really um, uh, there was the there was a joy in the collaboration. Uh, and it very much became very much like a family. So we understood each other uh, quite well, and there was a lot of respect and a lot of love there. And I really, you know, so it was it was family time. It was a great thing because every year we would, the family would get together and we would make a movie. Um, but there was also, again, there was also there was a real understanding of the material. We really all approached the material in a very, very similar way. There was a similar aesthetic. Now, if you were to ask me what that aesthetic is, I couldn't explain it to you. I can't because it's abstract. It's, it's, it's uh, organic. But there was right, the approach right. to the material was we were all on the same page. That's why those movies look so great um, because everybody was on the same page and approaching the material on a very similar uh, sense of, with a very similar sensibility. But the way that process used to work, just so you, again, so you understand it, is, um, uh, you know, Spike is not uh, the most articulate director in the world. He, I mean, he's very, um, and here's why. I mean, because in those, especially on those early movies, he had poured his heart and his soul into the screenplay. And then he put together a team of people who he allowed to come in and interpret that material. So what would happen is that uh, usually I was the first person hired. So I would come in. And back in those days, I used to actually uh, write a sort of whatever, a concept. I would write a, a, a paper that essentially expressed my concept or my approach to that material. Uh, and then once Spikes saw that conceptual approach and once he approved it, that piece of paper, the, that, those notes were sent to everybody. So uh, oh. as a result of that, the whole team was working from the same point of view. But this point of view, this conceptual point of view, was established by me, the production designer. I can give you an example of this. When we did, we did Mo, you, Mo, the, one, one of our earlier pictures was Mo Better Blues. Okay? Ooh, love it. Now, yeah. Now, 
if most jazz mo- movies as realistically take place in dark, um, uh, dank sort of places, right? Uh, and that's how the movie was written. But it was, you know, the, the club was sort of a dark basement club. But when I read the script, it felt like a 1950s movie musical to me. And that's what I said to Spike. I said, look, I'm going to... Dis- I'm, I'm going to design this like it's a 1950s movie musical. Uh, and therefore, it will give you a lot more uh, flexibility when it comes to staging of that sequence. It, by doing this, it takes you out of the basement club. I'm going to make it into a two-story nightclub. And when you clothe all the actors, you should clothe them like they're like in the 1950s movie musical. So if you look at Mo- oh, yeah. you see what I'm saying? When oh, you yeah, no, all the, brights all-, are, all the brights are popping out at me in my mind. I always wondered why that was so bright for a dark jazz club movie. I love it. Yes, and you look at how all the, the jazz musicians are dressed. Yes. Like they're coming out of a 1950s time. So this is what I'm talking So This is an example of how how it, the, the process worked in those early Spike Lee. In other words, he allowed, he gave me the freedom to interpret his material. Once he approved my concept, uh, my notes were distributed to the entire company and everybody worked within that framework. Because again, by approaching Mo Better Blues as a 1950s musical, it had an impact on everything, on how the movie was lit, on how the actors were costumed. You, and you look at it, and it looks, feels like a 1950s musical. So, well, so that's an example. Yeah, well, I, and I want to mention to you, audience, because I, I guess I'm 37, I'm just hitting the age where those films, I think it happens to every generation where you think, of course they've seen that, and now it's hitting the point with streaming or stuff's only in libraries where people haven't seen it. Now, I, I think no matter what, people will have always seen Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X, but uh, there's also those films that you got to go in there with, uh, Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, and, and we're going to jump into some other directors and films here, so it's not just a Spike Lee retrospective um, as much as I told you over email, do the right thing, you know, change my life, seeing racism in a movie and having just moved to an island where, where uh, I, I love all my Hawaiian friends now, but Hawaiians were treating me differently because I was white and I was getting shoved into lockers and and guys were trying to pick fights with me and they were saying, go out of here. It's not your land. And so, uh, that was the perfect time to see, uh, do the right thing. I was 10 years old. I remember just thinking it was cool. My dad would let me watch an R rated movie. Um, <laughs> uh, now as we look at the, uh, wide variety, we'll spend just a brief time on it and then we'll get into talking some film. Uh, you've, uh, Wag the Dog, um, and of course, for anyone who hasn't seen Inside Man, that's a Spike Lee movie. Please check it out. It uh, it is one of the most creative ways for bank robbers. I don't want to spoil it. 
I had a great question for you as a designer, but it would spoil the plot and the surprise of it. So um, what I wanted to mention was because we're at a crisis right now in the world with the lack of care for the mentally ill and the thinking of them as different people and um, a beautiful mind. The, the, the mm-hmm. one time I will say who shot it because every, every film fan seems to know two cinematographers, uh, but they always know Roger Deakins. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So to, so I'm looking at here that I'm interested in, say, a a gentleman and an artist who has to uh, create the look of a street in Brooklyn and then comparing it to you have to create different decades and different uh, ages and different Mm -hmm. clothing and not only... I'm not saying do the right thing is fictional in the sense that it doesn't happen or stuff like that doesn't go on. But now you're dealing with someone's real life. So how was Mm -hmm. that as a production designer to you're now working with a cinematographer that uh, you obviously have a respect level for and you know his quality of work. And then you're with Mm -hmm. a director who, in, in my opinion, could not be more different than Spike Lee. And you're having to deal with so many generations. I mean, what was that like for you as a production designer, a beautiful mind? Um, Well, you know, uh, uh, a beautiful mind was my first picture with Ron Howard, the director. Uh, A few years later, I did Cinderella Man with him, which was another period film. Um, Here's what... uh, what I, my process is, you know, I spend, to me, the script is the Bible. The script is the jumping off point. So even if you're dealing with a story uh, about a real person, what I'm doing ultimately is interpreting the script. I'm not interpreting that person's real life. We're not making a documentary about that person. I am as a designer, I am reacting and interpreting the script that the writer has written. So that's the story that I'm dealing with. Uh, It doesn't mean that I don't go back to the real places where the story has occurred or where John Nash uh, actually, you know, went to school, which is what we did. We did shoot on Princeton's campus uh, I did do research there to see what the dorms looked like. Um, I did use some of that research in my designing. Um, but ultimately, what I'm doing as a designer is servicing the needs of the script. So, um, and, um, you know, what my process is, is to first is to read the, the script. And what, there's a couple of things that are going on when the first, on the first read. You know, I'm reading for story. Then the thing that's important to me is that I read what I'm trying to determine is how I feel about the material. And this becomes very important to me as a designer because how, if depending on, I need to know what I feel because what I'm trying to do is to make sure that the audience is feeling what I'm feeling. 
So part of my design process is to try and determine what that is so I can design something so the audience is going on the same journey that I'm going on. So this, this becomes the, the abstract component of the process. Um, then I go out and I do a ton of research and I have files and folders and those folders will have uh, photographs in them. They'll have, uh, you know, I'll, yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll put, you know, st uh, styles of paintings there, different styles of painting. And I will use all this research to help me design, to help me design the film. So when you're doing something like A Beautiful Mind, which takes place at Princeton and during various decades, um, I'm going to have folders from the 1940s. I'm going to have folders from the 1950s. I'm going to have folders from the 1960s. So that when I sit down and to design the film, I'm making sure that I'm getting the period details correct. Um, then the other part of my brain that's working is again how do I how do I create an emotional a visual emotional journey for the audience to go on and that is usually determined by how I uh, treat the story in terms of color and what I call texture in other words what the feelings of the rooms are what the are the rooms is it brick is it is it smooth walls you know is it because surfaces uh, are can be, will telegraph to the audience what they're supposed to feel. So it's all of these things that are working simultaneously that help me design the picture. So now working with Ron was completely different than working with Spike uh, because Ron, first of all, Ron is someone that I didn't know. So as a result of that, I had to um, really uh, make sure it was clear the kinds of decisions that I was making. So as a result of that, I probably showed him a lot more research than I would would do with Spike. Um, so I had to be much clearer about what my intent was so that he would understand what my intent was because, again, I was working with, with someone that I didn't know. Um, but usually what happens is uh, there's a, usually if, if you're doing a good job, at some point or another, once they know that they can trust you, they usually give you a little bit more freedom to go ahead and finish the work and, and, and develop choices. But of course, the thing is, the director, of course, always has the final veto. So if you're not making the right choice, they will say no to whatever uh, uh, location you've chosen or whatever set that you've designed. But again, that didn't happen too much on, on A Beautiful Mind. So. Well, and, oh, yes, for sure. I mean, and... And Cinderella Man, you guys can check on Netflix. Um, and I, I did a, as of last night, I looked at what films are up on Netflix so you guys could listen to this and check it out or check out a film that's mentioned and then come listen to these explanations. Uh, and uh, Inside Man seems to go up and down. We all understand why Wag the Dog's not up. Um, and, and, uh, and of course that's Barry Levinson. Uh, the right. last, the last thing, uh, or one of the last things before we get into talking to some film, since you mentioned your classic film, uh, fan and I'm, uh, when I was in film school, when I was 20, um, I, I had the hardest time because it was the 
Paul Thomas Anderson, David Fincher, uh, the 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 second trilogy of Star Wars movies that came out. So it was kind of like that saying, there's two types of people, those who think film died with Godard and think it was started with Star Wars. And mm-hmm. I had the hardest time because I'd, I'd see some like it hot and people, nobody would want to talk about it. Or I'd see, mm-hmm. um, you know, some, I you know, Lawrence of Arabia, okay, bad example. Of course, they wanted to talk about that. But... Uh, didn't want to see Doctor. They didn't want to see Doctor Shivago and they John Ford who and not getting that the first twenty minutes of the Searchers is Star Wars and um, and of course Wizard of Oz. I mean, once you realize that uh, you know uh, Lost from Home is Wizard of Oz and he's on. Mm-hmm. He's on a search with four people. It's like Toto is R2-D2 and, you know, Chewbacca is the lion and all those right. things that we love to find. But um, with as far as Wag the Dog goes, and mm-hmm. I, I know that we could go on and on and on. So um, uh, maybe just one or two things. Seeing this film now, as I said, for me, I watched it the other day. I had, I had watched it the week before I met you, and then I've watched it a few times since. For those of you that don't know, Wag the Dog is about the theory that the government would make something up just to pull the news away from the president. And I think more so than ever. And I want to say first off of the show, we we respect democracy. We respect your right to an opinion. But since we have someone here who worked on Wag the Dog, uh, what is it like for you now to see this in the country? And you were a part of this when it was just kind of a farce and it was just kind of a like, we'll throw it out there as a great script. Um, is uh, there something uh, that you would like to share? Well, I think, uh, you know, the irony of Wag the Dog is, of course, uh, that we made the movie in it, and then the next year there was a sex scandal with Clinton. Um, um, so, it, it ironically, the press kept saying, he, you know, is the president bagging the dog? Uh, you know what I mean? It became <laughs> part of the... It became part of the media lexicon, really, in many ways, making reference to that movie and its subject matter. Um, But there have always been, I suspect, spin doctors uh, working in collaboration with the government. And Wag the Dog is, of course, that's what Wag the Dog is about. And the tragedy that that ensues as a result of that, uh, or the comedy that ensues. Um, But, you know, when you're... I remember working on, when we were working on that movie, it was, you know, you don't, you know, look, you go to work because you want, I make movies because I want to tell interesting stories. That's why, and I choose scripts based on the fact of whether or not the story interests me. And I've been very lucky in terms of, I've I've worked on some movies with some very interesting stories. So, that movie, when I first read that script, I, I, I remember I thought it was a drama. And then at some point there's that moment where the plane crashes right. in the movie. 
And I, I said, no, 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 no. This is not a drama. This is a comedy. Because that's what it is. Ultimately, in the end, it's a comedy with horrible consequences. But it's, it's a comedy. So I had to go back in and read, reread the whole thing. Because, again, my job is to support the tone of the story, right? So... It was it's it's a it was it was a very interesting design challenge for me because, you know, my job is of course to is to choose locations and to design sets that are all supporting the tone of the movie. But in terms of the the politics of the story or the impact of the politics or the comment or how the politics are commenting uh, on what's happening in the world, as a creative person, I cannot comment on that. You understand what I'm saying? I can't. Yes, I have to support. Again, I get back to this. This is because this is the crucial thing. I have to support what story the writer and the director are trying to tell. So, the 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 visual choices are not making a comment on what's happening. I'm, I'm simply supporting that story from what the story and supporting the, the specifics of that story. Um, so it's not that I am divorced to the politics. I certainly knew what they were. It's just right. that when I'm in my designer's chair, my job is different. I cannot be making, I think those movies don't work. If you make a comment on it, they work when the, all the elements are there to support the story that's trying to be told. Is, is that clear? Oh, yeah, no, definitely. I, yeah, no, I, so there's definitely something to be said for separating it because um, the the main thing that jumped out at me in terms of uh, I can't even imagine the undertaking it was in terms of sets and clothes and design mm. and then, of Malcolm yeah. X and then once again it's someone who's not only judged but that's judged in 20 different ways and then mm-hmm. you get into the as you know I'm uh, just speaking for the audience you know I always have trouble because I I I don't like saying black colored uh, or African American because to me we're all just people so I like saying people, I'll say, okay, that's, that person honors their ethnicity as mm-hmm. a Chinese person. But uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to that, that, and that film always taught me and then also disturbed me because, you know, I, I love studying Huey P. Newton and I loved reading uh, Malcolm's autobiography, but then I also, I, I have this thing where it's like, you know, be as mad as Malcolm, think like Malcolm, but talk like Dr. King. And, uh, or, or, you know, or even Harvey Milk. There's another one where I've had friends sure. that have criticized, you know, how can you listen to Huey P. Newton and Harvey Milk? I go, well, because they're people with a message that's mm-hmm. strong. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't care if Huey P. Newton is, in fact, he, Huey P. Newton, as you know, but so many people don't know, Historically, my favorite producer, who I try to model everything I do after, uh, Bert Schneider, the producer of Easy Rider and Last Picture Show, uh-huh. uh, 
his UEP Newton. And I thought, gosh, had I had that money at those times, I would have hit UEP Newton. So it's like, you know, it's, it's just this crazy dichotomy where it's like, I would have loved to have been able to sit at a Black Panther rally and been like, yes, people aren't getting their right. So, right. so, so Malcolm X, um, I just wanted to say a congratulations to you because that's such a huge undertaking. I can't even imagine, you know, you could probably do a two hour talk on just what that was mm-hmm. to be the designer right. of. Um, right. And so from there, since, since you've been so gracious with talking about your time, um, I think like you said, uh, let's, let's jump into some fun and talking about some old films or, you know, mm-hmm. what inspires you, what, what what do you throw on when it's your time to kick back or sure well before i get to that uh paul oh, yeah. i mean let's sort of yeah let you know here's the you know look i've been very lucky uh part of it is luck and part of it is is choice to work on a wide variety of films some of them have been uh, uh i've i've you know i've been uh uh, political in nature, and other of them have been sort of just lighthearted comedies. Um, you know, my goal as a as an artist and as an African American artist, uh, in particular, has always been to you know when I was growing up, I I didn't in my early days in my teenage days, you know, I was very unhappy with the portrayal of black people on screen. Uh, so one of the things that I did once I started working in the business was I really chose projects in which I, which I hope and which I think were p- portraying us in very positive and very dynamic ways and in ways in which black people have not been seen on screen. And as a result of that, as a, as a choice, um, I deliberately did not do movies in which I think, for example, if you look at the body of my work, you don't see drug dealers there. You don't see black people pushing drugs. You don't see us as pimps or whores or, or as strictly as street thugs. Because I think there's enough of those kinds of films being made. And I, as an artist, did not want to contribute to those images. I wanted to make sure that my people were portrayed with uh, with honor and integrity because uh, that's how I think of, uh, of us. So that was one of the things that uh, was a motivating factor in the terms of the kinds of movies in terms of, especially in the terms of in terms of African American uh, themed movies. Um, for I would never do straight out of Compton, for example. Uh, which I think was a great movie, but again, that is not the kind of image that I wish to see my people portrayed as. I mean, I saw that movie. I was asked to do that film, and wow! I, and again, yeah, I think it's a very, very interesting movie, and I think it's a very successful film. But those images, you know, because those guys are complicated. The rappers are complicated. Their histories are complicated what the messages that they're sending is also a very complicated message. Now, again, I don't disapprove of the message, but as a creative person, I don't want to be part of that message. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So, of the- and, and, of, and, of course, Matthew Libatique shot that. He's a great DP, and most people think of him as Iron Man yeah, 1 so, and 2 and, you know, popcorn. Yeah, but yeah, that was... That, yeah, absolutely. Okay. But in terms, again, what my point on all this is, so therefore, you know, I'm, I was very interested in doing a movie like Wag the Dog because of what it had to say about who we are as people and about the government and all that kind of stuff. So I've been lucky as a creative person in terms of the arc of the journey that I've taken as a creative, as an artist, to work on these wide variety of things. But it is not without, um, uh, it's, it's, it, without me making certain choices. So I think, you know, you know, you know, I've been very uh, diligent that way in terms of making sure that I'm working on products of what I think are, are just integrity or just entertainment. You know, when I do Mars Attacks, for example, you know, there's obviously, you, you know, I'm doing that because it's a great design challenge, but also it's entertaining. So, um, you know, well, it's, you know, well, as a production designer, to get to, to get to work with someone who's known for his, uh, I mean, I think his other production design was it Bo Welch. Um, yes, he's worked with the great ones. Rick Tim Burton has worked with uh, Rick Heinrich and with Bo Welch. He's really worked with some incredible artists. So it was quite an honor for me to be selected to do Mars Attacks. I was very happy to be there, and it was a great job and a great uh, opportunity for me. Um, now, so. now one, one last thing that came in my mind, especially since you mentioned Straight Outta Compton, since, since, you're mm-hmm. one of the, since you are one of the main parts of blocking and creating with the DP and the light and stuff, uh, like I mm-hmm. said, you can mention the talent, but just the films we've mentioned, people... I'm assuming I've already guessed the talent. Have you been able to take some lessons as a designer in the fact that, say, actor A from Inside Man uh, couldn't quite do his thing, and and you noticed that he went around the desk and it ended up being more powerful. So kind of like where the talent you've been around has been able... Um, especially since one of those uh, talents from Wag the Dog, you did a film he directed, uh, uh-huh. getting to learn from the multifaceted aspects of the actors. Uh, well, yeah. Look, I, again, here, look, the thing, the joy of our business is that it is a collaboration. And I think when you, you're talking about Robert De Niro here, who I I designed A Bronx Tale, which was Robert De Niro's directorial debut. Uh, And, you know, as we all know, Bob is one of the best talents in the business. I mean, he, um, what he brings to any job is a certain level of artistry and integrity and uh, honesty. Um. However, he, he is a man like anybody else, which means that he comes with um, his vulnerabilities. Uh, and, and by that, what I mean is that when I was working with him 
as a director. This was his first time working as a director. And he admitted that he didn't know everything. And he looked to me, he looked to me and to his other collaborators to help him with that process. There's no dishonor in asking for your collaborators to assist you in what your job is. And he is comfortable enough and he was comfortable enough and secure enough in his personality to say, I don't, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. Help me, you know, help me. And that's what I did, you know, and that's what a good director does. A good director will call on all of his collaborators to guide him to uh, his decisions when, when he or she doesn't know exactly what it is that they want to do. The myth is, is that the director knows everything. That has right, never right. been my experience. That has never been my experience. That is why they hire all of us to help them get to the choices that they're going to be making. So working with Bob on, on a Bronx tale was a fantastic, lovely experience. He, uh, um, um, Bob's approach is, is to be very realistic in terms of how he approaches the material. And so as a designer, that was my jumping off point to honor the realism of the situation or the, at, or the moment in the script. But also because that movie was based on Chaz Commentary's life, um, I had access to Chaz Commentary's family. So his family was always on the set and was part of my early process because I spent a lot of time talking to the family, uh, looking at photographs and talking to them about how they lived and talking to them about what they mem remembered. So all of that stuff was reflected in the choices that I made as a designer. And again, De Niro wanted me to experience the, the truth of Chaz Palminteri's life. So as a director, he was very supportive of all that. But it, um, so my overall point on this is, is that the joy of this job, no matter what the film is, is that you, if, if you're lucky, you're working with people who are allowing you to bring your artistry to the work um, and will put, put you in an environment where they're allowing you to... Uh, bring all your creative juices uh, to the table. So De Niro was very much like that. Uh, he, where he felt he didn't know something, he didn't hesitate to say, well, you know, I'm not sure here. And at that point, you know, I would help him find his way to a solution. And uh, that's what the, even Tim Burton's exact, Tim Burton's the exact same way. You would think that Tim Burton would, know, you know, would know exactly what it is that he wanted, but he doesn't know. And he's not afraid to say, well, you know, what do you think? That's a good working relationship with any director on any job. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love the quote that I saw with Roger Deakins one time where he said uh, they asked him after uh, in so many movies at the Coen Brothers, he said, sometimes I still don't know where to put the camera or people think I'm cooking up uh, some this idea I've had all night and I'm really just sitting there going, hmm, is the camera go here or there? And I remember that being kind of a, if, if, if Roger Deakins is completely lost in the morning, then 
Uh, I feel totally great having no clue. Uh, just as simple how to approach a podcast or like well, you there know, you go. The, yes, that that's... beautiful birth in the morning of mm-hmm. going, hey, it might end up here or there or, and, you know, so that's, that's what's good about it. I mean, I, I have all these notes that I made to talk with you and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. probably about 25% of it uh, has, has been what's followed. And I love that. I'm, I am, I'm yeah. so beyond high right now talking to him with you and hearing these <laughs> stories. I, I'm going to be high till the end of the night, probably in the morning too. Um, Thank you. So, so, so with that, um, unless there's anything else you'd like to add, I would, uh, I would, I would love to hear about any films that, uh, that are, that are always on your shelf, no matter how many times the formats change or yeah, who yeah. looks to, who you look to or who got you into it. What's the, well, you what, know, what? I, I, you know, there, I'm a real Kazan, uh, I really love many of the Lion Kazan films, uh, East of Eden. And, you know, you know the, the, nowadays what happens when you work with, uh, you know, I'm the old guy in the room, which I love being the old guy in the room. But when, you know, when I'm working with new people who, uh, who are young, one of the things I insist that they do is that they go and they look at East of Eden and they have to look at On the Waterfront. Um, yeah. They have to look at Splendor in the Grass. Uh, oh, yeah, Ernie Beatty. Or Ellie Warren Beatty. And um, uh, they have to look at uh, Streetcar Named Desire uh, Ooh, because baby. I just, you know, part, you know I, <clears throat> frankly, if you don't know about those movies, then I can't really have a conversation with you. Uh, and I'm quite clear about this nowadays. In other words, that's, that becomes like a prerequisite. You know, when I hired someone as a PA, I say, these are the movies that I need you to go look at because they're such a big part of what I just think is great movie making. And if I'm going to have a discussion with you about many things, I very often will reference those movies. Um, and like yourself, uh, like you mentioned earlier, you know, I love all the David Ling movies, uh, all of them, I mean, from his early, from Great Expectations to Summertime, and of course, who doesn't love all the epics, and you know, uh, you know, I think Ryan's Daughter is, you know, which was a huge flop when it came out, it has aged beautifully, so people haven't seen Ryan's Daughter, they really need to revisit that movie. Um, I, um, I like Billy Wilder, I mean, I just, just I, there's so many movies that I like, I mean, here's the problem, Today, the problem back when I was growing up, and again, this is true, and I'm sorry to make one of these stories back when I was growing up stories. Oh, so, no, you know, no. there, were, there were revival houses where you could go and see all these old movies. Um, okay. That doesn't exist anymore. So if you don't have an interest, there's no way to go to kind of discover these films. And that's a tragedy. I'm lucky that I live in New York City where the, there's places like the Film Forum which still exist which is where you can go and see uh, many of these old classics. Um, and it really yeah. saddens me that young people don't have access. Uh, how do you know about something if you don't have access to it? 
So, you know, most people think that the world began the year that they were born. Uh, <laughs> right. And, right. And my, yeah. uh, I like to play a game with people where I ask them what year they were born and then we talk about the best picture. Well, mine was Kramer versus Kramer, so the conversation never oh, really oh. lasts long. But with what you're saying about revival houses, you know, we have, obviously, L.A. has a lot of classic film nights, but Orange County here has one, and I got to see Easy Rider. I got to see Chaplin's Modern Times. Um, speaking of On the Waterfront, since, since that's the film you listed in a go-see, you'll love this story. I was in Honolulu, and I was looking at the paper, and it said, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, so... The next day, I was down there to see Close Encounters on the big screen. Well, long story short, I see a paper that says 75-year anniversary, uh, Columbia Pictures Film Festival. And I look, and the night before was Taxi Driver. The day before wow. was Easy Rider. The day before was Kwai. Then it was Lawrence of Arabia. Well, the good news is, the next day I go, on the waterfront, what the heck is that? So I called my grandmother wow. and I said, I said, tomorrow in the afternoon, there's this double feature. I, I, I said, uh, Brando? I said, of course, I was dumb. I thought his, he got his break in The Godfather. I said, um, I go, Brando from The Godfather? She goes, oh, you're young, son. You're 19, 20. It's okay. So she said, on the waterfront, go see it. I said, and so I hung up and I didn't say what the second movie was. So I go the next day, first time ever I see on the waterfront. Also a few years ago at Turner classic movies festival. We cover that as media. I saw it at Grauman's with my dad, mm. but so mm. back to on the waterfront, I see it. I'm blown away. I look at the thing and I, and I don't even read I'm in Hawaii I don't even read far enough down to see that it was shot in Hawaii. And I go, you know, from here to eternity, I've never heard of Montgomery <laughs> Cliff. That just sounds stupid. And I walk out and I get home. Oh and my grandma, God. Goes, grandma says, you said you saw a double feature. What did you see? I said, well, I was so blown away by On the Waterfront. What could follow that? She goes, I know, but what did you see? I pull out the paper as a collector's item, and literally, it was the only time she ever said it. She said, "She said, you're not my grandson. Because <laughs> <laughs> she was so into movies. She's where I get film history. My dad's where I get filmmaking and film history. But she was like the, had women not been told to be put in the kitchen, she would have been a published author. And so I was like, and, and I just, I came back out and go, what? She goes, go get it at Blockbuster. You'll see what you missed. So whenever I think of On the Waterfront or, or from here to eternity, I think of how I got to see one. And, of course, Splendor in the Grass. That's also Natalie Wood for those of you out there. Um, you know, and, of course, it's so hard to not think of Roman Holiday with her and all the great humanitarian work she did. Um, but you mentioned Billy Wilder, and I have to jump in and say that as much as I love Sunset Boulevard and I love Some Like It Hot and, and Witness mm -hmm. for the Prosecution, one that I think is so greatly overlooked because it's, you know, it's played off of that political time where Brando had to wait for four nominations to finally win 
is and that William Holden should have got an Oscar for Sunset Boulevard, but instead Stalag 17. Uh, I always recommend this movie. People want to watch it because it's black and white, but I'm like, any POW movie, 90% of movies that took place in one location, 12 Angry Men, Breakfast Club, all these stuff we look up to, it's the law of 17. Yes, right, right. And, I mean, you know, so I'm just, and for Mm -hmm. Billy Wilder, I mean, there's, uh, talk of a journey, I mean, for, for the audience, you know, starting out as a contract writer and then going on to make Sabrina and then the fortune mm. cookie that brought brought us Walter Matthau and, and sure, the some of us, yeah, the apartment, as I say, the apartment, I mean, and I believe that's the first time, you know, we're not about, it's not about awards, but I think that's the first time a director and screenplay director and picture, but yeah, the apartment, uh, the apartment for for the younger no. generation. Uh, that's yeah. what Kevin Spacey said he based his performance in American Beauty on. So it's kind of like no Jack Lemmon, no Kevin Spacey. So, mm-hmm. um, oh, thank you for bringing up the apartment. I, I I own that. Some like it hot in Sunset Boulevard, and luckily I have stuff to do today. Otherwise, I would be watching those three the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> but but. Please feel free. I'm I'm sorry I cut you off. You were you were going to say something no. about Billy Wilder. No, I think it happened one night. Was Frank Capra yes, one, yes. was the first? It was the first to win picture writer director. Oh, the that's right to win the major. Yeah, sorry, that's sorry. right. It happened one night, and then Cuckoo's yeah. Nest to win the yes. to win the wow. actor. So, I yeah, and Capra. Right. I mean, yeah. When people go yeah, with look, it's a wonderful life. I mean, it's great, but it, it happened one night. You can't take it with you. Meet John Doe. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, fantastic. And look, you know, in a perfect world, um, people would, you know, that's what colleges are for. Or look, you know, right. I I was a um, uh, look. I'm a geek. You know, I and I, you know, I don't hesitate ex- uh, describing myself that way. So once I become obsessed with something, I really kind of uh, just throw myself into it wholeheartedly. So as a result, um, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I thrive on the details. Uh, but I do wish, I mean, the the problem with the demise of the revival houses is it doesn't give. Our, uh, a current generation, the opportunity to learn about these movies, and um, you know, um, and and I, and so much of that stuff, of course, informs who we are today. Or you can use, go back and use it to, um, you know, you can learn a lot by uh, looking at those movies. You know, and you know, early Fellini. I mean, early Fellini is some of the best uh-huh. strata. And uh, Juliet of the Spirits and uh, Knights of Cabrinia. I mean, all those are fantastic movies, and, and they're all fantastic stories. Uh, and that's why they they continue to work today. So, yeah, anyway, I love you mentioned that because it's like the, there's more than. I mean, don't get me wrong, eight and a half with Dolce Vita, but it's like with Kurosawa. I'm always saying there's more than 
Ron and Rashomon, there's Dreams, right. and Ikiru, right. and Yojimbo. Mm-hmm. And, and how few people know that uh, Yojimbo, I think it's Yojimbo and Sanjuro, are what Eastwood modeled the Spaghetti Westerns after with Tony. And then, of That's course, right. Seven Samurai is where we get yes. Magnificent Seven. Magnificent. Oh, right. Yeah. And and have you seen the new Magnificent Seven? I have. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, I, I loved it. it. Oh, Anton Fuqua, yeah. he's such a master. Oh, yeah. oh my well, gosh. Well, you know, the thing about Fuqua, you know, Fuqua is really an incredible director, and he's a classic. He's a, a, a I don't know, I'm not going to really say this word, but he is a very, he, he, he his model of filmmaking is a very sort of classic model of filmmaking. He, you can tell that he's looked back to the masters to to make his movies. They, that he's been inspired by the masters. Um, uh, so I'm trying to say classicist, which is I'm not saying it properly, but that's what he is. And you can see that in uh, the uh, composition and uh, of, of his movies. They're 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 beautifully and brilliantly composed. Uh, and uh, he's 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 the real deal. Very exciting whenever I'm always excited when he has a new movie coming out. Oh, yeah. I mean, from training day on, the first five minutes, I said, <laughs> I'm going to fall this. I mean, Brooklyn's finest. I'm not the biggest fan of Tears in the Sun, but I do support it because it was shot in Hawaii and friends worked on it. But um, I'm sure you've seen it. If for any reason you haven't, uh, Lightning in a Bottle, Scorsese produced mm-hmm. it, where he had all. Yeah, I mean, for, for uh-huh. people out there, it's finally libraries after 10 years. Lightning in a Bottle is Radio City Music Hall with B.B. King and Hubert Sumlin and and uh, David Honeyboy Edwards and uh, all these great, uh, some we've since lost, but uh, females, males, bands playing the blues and... And now to know that a lot of those artists are gone and Radio City Music Hall is, you know, what a great thing that Scorsese and, and he did to to get that all down while it was there. I mean, that that essentially is a, is a historical artifact now, that film. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I guess that's the, that's the real beauty of it. Um, but yeah, we've uh, we've come into our last few minutes here, and I want to thank you for this this uh, this wonderful interview. Um, I, I what I, how I always close the show is that I give the guests uh, a few minutes of open floor because I I think you had told me um, there was another film you had during the holidays. If you'd like to plug that. Oh, yes. Well, I have a movie coming out called Hidden Figures. Uh, it's coming out from Fox, and it's, it's the story of um, <clears throat> uh, three black women who were working at the NASA facilities in, as mathematicians in the 1960s. <gasps> That's yours. It's, Sorry. Yes, yes. Um, and it's a, it's a, you know, I, it's a fantastic movie. Uh, it has Taraji Henson and Octavia Spencer, oh. and a young actress named Janelle Monet, whose career is really taking off, as well as Jim Parsons and Kevin Cosner. And it's a really, you know, 
NASA hired a whole series of women back in the 50s and the 60s who were hired to, they were, they were referred to as human computers. So someone would say, get me a computer, and they was referring to these women who were mathematicians. And these women were doing incredible work. These were white women as well as black women. And unfortunately, Langley was below the Mason-Dixon line, so as a result of that, the black women were working in segregated facilities there. Uh, and this film is the story of uh, Catherine Johnson, who is a woman who was the woman, the black woman, who was the person who figured out the math to get John Glenn into space, but also more importantly to get him back home. So this is a story that we haven't heard before, and it's really a celebration of all of the women who were working at uh, NASA during that time period but in particular these three black women who made such a strong contribution to the space program. So I do encourage all of your listeners to take a, a look at this film. It is a story of uh, the space program. It's a story about John Glenn. And it's the story of these three incredible women who really changed the course of our his the history of the space program. And no one knows about them. So hopefully these women will no longer be hidden from society uh, after this movie is released. Well, that's fantastic. I saw that trailer and I thought I got to see that. And I figured Christmas and I forgot the title. So thank you very much for bringing that up. We're definitely going to, we'll definitely see that and thank you uh, and review it. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're grateful for today and we'll, uh, I'll make sure uh, the sound editor is going to be working on it. So it'll be released and I'll send it to you next week, Monday. Oh, thank you so much, Paul. Look, it's been a blast uh, uh, yes. talking or talking with you or letting me talk today. I, I appreciate the opportunity very, very much. So thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And we say this to every guest. No one ever has to do it or not, but we, we let guests know that, uh, you know, what we're doing is creating a family tree of, of filmmakers all over the country and of all levels. And so if a filmmaker ever wants to come back or they have a film they'd like to promote, um, you're more than welcome. Again, it's not expected, but I'm just putting that out there to you. So, so you know, because we want to be a show that's comfortable for filmmakers where they're not, you know, having to sell or be pimped or so. Uh, so know know okay. that our whole team is, was excited about today and our sound editor is going to love listening to this. So, so yeah. Well, thank you, Paul. Really appreciate it. Excellent. I appreciate that too, Wynn. And you take care and, and uh, we wish you a wonderful holiday season and all our best to you and yours. Okay. Thank you. Bye now. All right. Take care. And that was Mr. Wynn Thomas, who really I've actually been a fan of few production designers. I've actually been a fan of them as a production designer. So that was a blast. I'm too excited. I'm not going to continue babbling. I'm going to wrap up by saying, whether it's morning, afternoon, evening, or any other time of day you find yourself in, 
make sure and watch a good movie. Get out and see Almost Christmas. It's hilarious. And check out When Hidden Figures is coming out this holiday. Uh, and thank you, Mr. Wynn Thomas. Thank you, Way and Joe from Terminus for helping set this up. And Mr. Thomas's agent. Aloha. Thank you for listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast. Real conversation and movie-induced inspiration.